Well, good morning. It's great to have everybody here today. If you have your Bibles, ah, junior church, if you're a young person, junior church age, uh, five years to third grade, you can be dismissed for junior church at this point. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Matthew chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 32 to 52 in our time together uh, this morning. What what did I say? Oh, my, okay. Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. All right. Look, that's only going to be the first of many mistakes that are going to happen in the next half hour, no doubt. Okay. It's probably going to be one of those days. So, anyway, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. If you turn somewhere else, I'm sure it's a good passage. We're just not looking at it today. All right. Requests can be very, very interesting. About two years ago, my uh, daughter came up to me, my youngest, who was getting married at that point. Uh, It was a little ways off. And she said, Dad, my birthday's coming up. It's my last year in the home. You see how she's setting me up with all these things? Will you go skydiving with me? Yeah, exactly what I was thinking. Exactly. And, and of course, I felt absolutely manipulated and, and, all, and I ended up doing it. So, um, so yeah. So, it was, uh, yeah. It, I, I actually should, you know, they take pictures of these things. Some pretty crazy pictures. But, but requests, we, we all live with them. And some requests are friendly and some are direct and open and honest and Others are vague and manipulative. You know what I mean? And you got to be careful. Have you ever had your kids ask you something like this? I have six kids. They've all done this at least once, probably several times. Dad, I'm going to ask you something, and I want you to make sure you give it to me. Now, I mean, like when you hear that, what do you think? Like, what exactly are you asking for, right? But, but you, you know when they ask you that way, when it's vague, you know it's gone, it's gone south fast. You, you just know it. And then other people, when they make a request, it's direct and honest and straightforward, and you're like, uh, I get it. I, I had Googled this week. I Googled the word requests appropriate and inappropriate. Isn't it amazing what you can find on Google? Like, there's no question that you ask that like 10,000 people haven't asked already. It's just, the whole thing always just amazes me. And I found that one area where they have a lot of problems with requests uh, is between doctors and patients. Um, Where patients will be asking for things that they just should not be asking for. You know, another drug or more of this or more of that. And so we live in a world where requests are not bad, but sometimes they are, right? Sometimes they're very intentional and other times they're very innocent. And I just want you to know that is not unique to our day at all. Because this passage we're looking at in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52, you have... Two requests coming from two guys on the one hand 
and one guy on the other hand, and they are worlds apart when it comes to intent. Matter of fact, in the passage, Jesus will, will, will make a statement that's virtually the same. Look in verse 36 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus will say, what do you want me to do for you? And again in verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? So his question back to them is almost identical, but the actual requests are worlds apart. And as we look at these two requests, the the one Jesus is going to affirm, the other one Jesus is going to have to correct. But through both of these, Jesus is going to teach you and I some very, very important lessons about following him. So let's walk our way through this. And there's, and when people tell you there's not humor in the Bible, like they're not reading. I mean, they're just not reading the text because there's, there's often humor, it seems to me, when you're reading this. So this first scene takes place as they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. They're coming down perhaps um, near Perea or Judea, and they're, they're going to be actually coming down to a place called Jericho. So they're on their way to Jericho. From Jericho, they're going to travel 17 miles up to Jerusalem. So as we're reading now, this, this first story is them coming from Galilee down toward Jericho. The second story we're going to look at, they're actually in Jericho itself, which is going to set them up for going to Jerusalem, where Christ is going to die. Listen to what the text says. In this first scene. Bible says in verse 32. They were on their way to Jerusalem. With Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. While those who followed were afraid. Well that's kind of an interesting setting isn't it? So they're ultimately going to Jerusalem. And the Bible says Christ is out front leading them. Moving them along. And the 12 are looking at this whole thing and going like, thinking to themselves, what are we doing? They're astonished and amazed that they're going, that Jesus is leading them there. And the other followers of Christ are just downright scared. Scared of what? What are they afraid of? What concerns them? Well, with Jesus' teaching and with the kind of response that they've already found from the religious establishment, my guess is a lot of these followers are thinking, we're going to get up in Jerusalem and we're going to have some major problems either with the religious leaders and and the Roman governors and authorities or both. And so they're all tentative and nervous about this. But man, we're gone because we think King Jesus is going to win this whole thing. But we're, we're, we're nervous. And, and what happens is they, they, they miss, because what Jesus d- does next is going to make them even more nervous. They're still missing his ultimate intent for going to Jerusalem. So notice what happens in this setting. He takes the 12 aside, the Bible says, and told them what was going to actually happen to him when they got there. And it's actually worse than they thought. This is Jesus' third prediction of what goes on in Jerusalem, and it's his most detailed. He says this, 
We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, referring to who? Jesus. It's, It's the designation most often for himself. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Okay? Delivered by who? A betrayer. Judas Iscariot. They will then condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. Who will then mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and ultimately kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So you, if you thought there was angst initially, they're going up, yeah, but he's King Jesus, we're going to win this thing. Jesus is going to say, at least initially, it's going to look like I'm not going to win anything. I'm going to die. And that suffering is going to be people mocking me verbally and spitting at me and scourging me and beating me and then killing me. But here's what's fascinating. Every one of those verbs are in the passive because it's things that's happening to Jesus by somebody else. But then it turns and Jesus says, but in the thir- on the third day, I will arise. Now, somewhere between Jesus pulling the 12 aside and explaining that, I don't know exactly what happens to actually prompt them to say what they say in the next verse, but it's, an, it's a strange, at one level you think it's a strange question. If Jesus has just done that for you, He's pulled the 12 aside. I'm going to suffer in this terrible way, betrayed by one of you and given over to the Jews and then over to the Romans and they're going to do all kinds of terrible things. Wouldn't you think that you'd start thinking about, wow, this is hard. Jesus, how can we pray for you? Jesus, what can we do? Don't you think? Well, that's not exactly what happens. In verse 35... Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It sounds just like my kids. Doesn't it? And and you don't know it from Mark's account, but we do know it from Matthew's account, that in reality, they actually had this message going through their mother. You read Matthew's Matthew's account, Matthew would say, John and James are there kind of pushing mom out in front. She bows down before Christ and she says, I want you to do what we're going to ask you here, Lord. And, and, and they're going to keep asking mom. But they actually used their mother. The point is, their question is manipulative and vague through and through. Which, which tells you that they know what they're asking, they shouldn't be asking. Right? How could you be so insensitive, James and John? Jesus has just poured out his heart and shared with you what he's going to go through and the victory that comes out of it. And all you can do is come up and ask him a manipulative question for your own purposes. Now, I don't know what what spurred all of this. Perhaps part of it was that it wasn't too long before this that Jesus had talked about each of them being on 12 thrones 
in glory when he actually reigns. Maybe, maybe that's part of what they're thinking. Maybe James and John are thinking, hey, whenever somebody does something special with Jesus, it's Peter, James, and John. So James is my brother, John's my brother. So we'll put Peter out and we're going to ask him this question um, about, uh, for us. I mean, I don't know what, what they're thinking exactly because they're part of the three or because there's 12. But here's the incredible thing. Jesus can talk about the wonders and glories of heaven and you still have people thinking, even in light of that, but can we be number one even there? When Jesus has just talked about all he's going to go through. I mean, self-centeredness is alive and well. So Jesus asked the question any good parent would ask in verse 36 when they say, will you do for us whatever we ask? Open-ended? Manipulative? Vague? Well, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, they're their mother, we know from Matthew's account. Um, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So Lord, we'll push Peter out. We're just talking James and John here. There's 12 thrones. Yeah, I don't know, whatever you were saying about Jerusalem, which makes us kind of nervous, but whatever. We really want to focus on ourselves right now. So when that glory comes, you got to have somebody on your right and left. Hello, we think it should be us. There's their request. Really Christ-centered stuff, right? Passion for Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about who? It's all about them. Jesus is so kind and tender in his response as he is with us. And look at what he says. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? <laughs> we can, they answered. <laughs> oh, isn't it? I mean, these guys, it's like, do you guys not get it? And one of the things Jesus has been teaching and will continue to teach and will cover right through the scriptures is suffering always comes before glory, doesn't it? It's always the way it works. So Jesus will go through all of this difficulty, all this suffering, but he will arise and be exalted. And, and all they're hearing because they were there for the transfiguration, all they had seen, all they could think about was glory. And when they thought about glory, they primarily thought about themselves rather than about Jesus. And so they make the request. And Jesus says, guys, you do realize that the way this works is suffering comes before glory. Are, are you willing to go through suffering with me? Yes, we are, Lord. Well, just wait. Because what happens to them when they're in the garden and everybody comes for Jesus? Man, they cut and they run. But yes, Lord, we're willing for all that suffering. <laughs> okay, Jesus says, you will drink the cup I drink 
And you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. You, you will suffer for me, with me. But to sit on my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. <laughs> and I don't know how else to say this, but there, there does seem to be a somewhat subtle innuendo here by Jesus saying, those spots on the right and left, I mean, someone's going to be there. But James and John, just so you know ahead of time, it's not going to be you guys. It's, I mean, you're going to be with me in glory. It's going to be great stuff. But um, that has already been chosen and figured out. And it doesn't have your name on it. Well, the 10 disciples overhear this whole thing. And you know what they do? They step in immediately and they say, James and John, how could you de-emphasize the centrality of Jesus Christ? You should be focusing on who he is and his glory. And let's talk about the suffering he's going to go through because the most important thing is Christ. Is that what they say? Not at all. It goes from bad to worse, folks. Jesus has been teaching about the importance of suffering with him and looking at his own life and what he actually goes through as a model for, for the kind of thing that we should be willing to go through. And the other guys are listening to Jesus teach that and they're not, they're not upset at, at the two because they're de-emphasizing Jesus. They're, they're focusing on the two because the two are de-emphasizing them. Aren't they? Look what it says. When the 10 heard this, verse 41, they became indignant with James and John. They were ticked off because James and John beat them to the question. I mean, wouldn't you love to know what Peter's thinking at this point? He's part of the 10. And he may be thinking, are you kidding? Like, whenever we do the transfiguration stuff and all, I'm always involved in it too, and I'm the lead guy, so that should be for me. I mean, I don't know what he's thinking. But they're all indignant, not because Christ has been diminished, but because they have been diminished. Do you see? And so Jesus is not only going to teach them about the importance of understanding suffering with him, but serving like him. Look at what he says. Jesus called them together <laughs> again. Jesus is always calling the 12 together. You know, they're, they're bickering and they're scared on the road. He pulls, t- calls them together and says, look, I'm going to suffer before the resurrection. That's the way it works. Now he calls them together. and I don't know what they're saying to each other. He, guys, guys, just come here, come here. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And they knew this. In their day, they had seen the Herod's rule. In their day, they had seen the Roman governor's rule. And folks, I know people get upset with politics in our day for a host of reasons on both sides and all kinds of things happen. I get it. I get it. I get upset too. I understand. 
But boy, we have it so much better than they had it in antiquity, I'm telling you. Because these rulers in antiquity, I mean, it was all about using people and abusing people and eliminating people so that I, as the ruler, got what I want. You were there to be used and manipulated for my purposes. That's how it worked in antiquity. You study the Herods. You studying the Roman governors. You tax them. You push them as far as that you can push them. And then when you think they might revolt, you back up just a little bit. And you get as much as you can in the process. I mean, that's the way the world works. Jesus says, look, look at the way it works out there. You guys are bickering and complaining. Why does John get to say that? I should be at the right, not him. And James, Peter says, yeah, but I, I mean, they're just, they're going at it. I don't know what they're saying, but they're going at it. Jesus says, shh, shh, shh. Look at how people lead in the world around us. They manipulate and they control for their own benefits. Not so with you, Jesus says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Is that easy? Is that easy for us to do? Is that, it certainly wasn't easy for them to do. Is it easy for us to do? No. Look, folks, I have a hard enough time doing it in my family. In my home. With people I know and love. Right? I mean, it's, it's a challenge in every sphere of our life. We tend to be individuals that if we want to serve others, we will do it selectively. This text gives me no wiggle room. This text says you should have an attitude that says, how can I be God's conduit through which... He uses me so that you can become what he wants you to be. How, how can I be that conduit, Lord? And it's, it's not selectively just for you or you or you. It's, select, it's, it's comprehensively for all. To be a servant, to be a slave of all. And he uses the picture of I will do whatever I have to so that you can become what God wants you to become. And for them and for us, that's humanly impossible. Isn't it? It's just, I mean, it's just this. Nobody just goes, gets up in the morning and goes like, oh, this will be like an easy one. It's not. You know what he does? Just like Christ became the example of suffering, Christ becomes the example of servanthood. Look what he says. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you know who the Son of Man is in antiquity, in the scriptures? It seems to me without any question, it's referring us back to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, you have this picture of the coming Son of Man. 
And in there, it talks about the fact that he is going to come in glory and in wonder. And he will rule and he will reign. And all will come under his authority. So when, when you read the Son of Man here, when they heard the Son of Man, they would have been driven back to Daniel chapter 7. Messiah, King, you see? And the text says, even him, the Son of Man, Christ, who came from this great place of glory in heaven itself and became one of us that he might die for us. Even that king who is going to reign. In his first coming, this is his stance. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says, look at me. I'm the Messiah. If anyone could come and say, I will be selective in my leadership and I will use you for my own purposes, it could be Messiah. But the Messiah does the very opposite. And when you track with Jesus' life, we've been reading it. Haven't you found again and again and again and again, Jesus is there with the people that nobody else cares about and he's touching them and he's caring for them and he's ministering to them and he's wrapping his arms around children and touching people who are lame and loving people and stuff. That's who he is. His entire ministry is not excluding anybody, but wrapping his arms around all saying, God values you. I value you. How can I teach you and minister you the most important thing in life? That was his life. And his death, he gave himself that he might be a ransom for many. What is a ransom? A ransom is a payment made so that another can go free. The son of man who's going to be in this glorious, wonderful reigning position in light of his second coming. I get it. We get that, right? Is one who said sinners must pay an eternity for their sin. But I'm going to come and I will take that entire payment upon myself so that they could go free. Jesus says, guys, look at my ministry. Look at what I've been doing with the lame and the blind and and every group that you think could be ostracized and put to the periphery, I have embraced. I have loved and cared for. I am going to a cross and I will take your place and pay for your sin so that you can be forgiven and go free. Even, even the son of man did not come to serve, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask James and John, how are you guys feeling right about that? Because I know how I feel about my own life when I read those words. Um, no one, has, no one ever had to teach 
Doug Finkbeiner to love himself. Man, I mastered that one. Man, I, I, I'm, I'm the best. And so are you. This is the kind of transformative work that Christ wants to bring to our life. And when James and John were thinking about the whole package, they didn't hear about the suffering. They didn't watch this. Instead, they just wanted all the praise and glory for themselves. And Jesus cuts through all of that and says, look, God will take care of you in glory. You all, no one's going to get to heaven and say, bummer, I was three seats away. Where are you? I mean, is anybody going to say, like, man, I wanted to be on row one, and they got me on row 96. Whatever the rows look like in heaven, I don't know. There won't be rows. I'm making it up. But, but you know what I'm saying? It won't matter. We will all just be like, holy mackerel, this is better than I could have imagined. Right? I know mackerel, my wife always tells me, mackerels are not holy, but Whatever. I'm just saying, I, I, we're just, we're going to be overwhelmed with that experience. And Jesus says, don't focus there. Focus now on being so united to, with me that you're willing to suffer for my name's sake. And you're willing to serve anybody just like I did. And then what's really fascinating In the next passage, Jesus gives us another illustration, both of his love and a disciple who responds, frankly, somewhat differently than the 12. Listen to what it says. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, um, was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, it it is interesting. Mark gives us Bartimaeus' name. Matthew doesn't and Luke doesn't. Actually, Matthew tells us there was more than one blind guy. But it may be that, that, that somebody in Mark's audience knew of either Bartimaeus or his father, Timaeus. I don't know. I, I, I don't know exactly, but there was some kind of relationship there is my guess. Anyway, here you have this blind man, Bartimaeus. He's sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Can you see this scene? They're coming through Jericho and there's throngs of crowds. As they're moving along, Bartimaeus, who can't see, he's blind, folks. All he can do is hear. He can smell, he can taste, he can touch, but he can't see anything. And he's saying, what's, what's, What's going on? And they say, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And man, the guy knows enough about this Jesus of Nazareth that he just screams at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, which is only used a couple times in Mark's gospel. 
Here, and a little bit later when Jesus has a confrontation at the temple over the son of David. But clearly what he's saying is, Jesus, you are the ultimate son of David, Messiah, that has come. I believe that. And I want you to have mercy on me. And the crowd say, oh, let's get this guy to Jesus because Jesus loves everybody. Is that what happens? Nope. Shut up. Shut him up. Be quiet. We're on our way to Jerusalem. Shut up. I don't know. Something like that. This guy would not be deterred. Because he knew Jesus was the son of David. And I don't know this. I'm just, just wondering out loud in my head. Which sometimes can be a dangerous thing. Could it be that Bartimaeus was aware of Psalm 72? A psalm which seems to be addressed to Solomon, the son of David, but it's ultimately addressed to the Messiah King. About the way the king is supposed to rule and reign. And, and, and in the midst of that, you have this statement about the ideal king in verse 12. He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. Could it be that a psalm like that is stirring around in his head? And he's saying, the ultimate son of David is going to be the perfect king. And the perfect king cares about everybody. And when they cry, he listens. My guess is something like that is going on. And so when everybody says, be quiet... He will not be quiet because he knows what the son of David is all about. He can't see, but he can listen. And he's heard about Jesus. Perhaps he's heard that that scriptural text and he cries out again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now that's a request also. Is that a good request? That's, a, that's the best request. Because he's requesting of Jesus what Jesus wants to do. When the two were asking, James and John, they were asking what they wanted Jesus to do. When you pray a request to God that's all about him doing what he wants to do for his glory and your good, that's a good request. And I love it. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And you have to admit, these people then, the crowd like turns, they're kind of fickled. I don't know. Look at what they do. So they call to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Weren't you the guys that just said, shut up? Anyway, whatever, you know. He's calling you. I know, okay. Throwing his outer cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Wouldn't you love to have seen that? Folks, this guy's blind. 
You don't have a lot of things in life that you can hold on to. Your outer garment is one of the most important things. Because if you don't have that, it gets cold, you're in trouble. You're blind, you want that nearby. In this moment when someone says, Jesus said, come to him, he doesn't even care about his outer garment. He whips that baby off, where is it? Whatever, I don't care. He jumps up, like, he's blind. You know what I mean? Like, he's getting to Jesus, man. Who cares? Man, I, I love his perseverance. I love the fact that he abandons everything just to get to Jesus. I just, I mean, it's it, it my kind of guy. I want to talk to him in heaven too. He comes to Jesus, verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I would like to see. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Literally, it says your faith has saved you. Because in this moment, he is not only healed physically, but spiritually. What, what, what could he have done at that point? He could have um, said, thank you very much, and just gone on his way. What does he do in the text? He follows Jesus along the road. Which road is this? The road leading to Jerusalem. The road where Christ is going to suffer. And his disciples are going to cut and run. And this guy in his innocence and exuberance and his passion. He's not afraid like they were at the beginning on the road. This guy who can see for the first time is saying, I'm in. Where will you go, Jesus? I'm there. Isn't that a breath of fresh air? In a book that often portrays the 12 in a very negative light. With all their struggles and all their failures and foibles. You have these minor characters who keep bubbling up in the book who become models of the way we're supposed to live. Do you think, as, if, as they were walk, walk, walking along, if there was another blind man over there that said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, do you think this blind man, the previous blind man, would say, shut up? Do you think it's what he would do? I guarantee you, man, he's over there saying, come on, man, Jesus is the one, come on! You know what I mean? And you told him, said, hey, look, man, we're a little bit nervous going to Jerusalem. We don't know what's happening there. Jesus is talking about death and all kinds of stuff. And Romans may not like them. We may have another war in our hands. I mean, we've had this before with would-be messiahs, you know. And he'd say like, whatever. And he'd stay right with the, on the path. Because for this guy, Jesus was everything. For the disciples... The only way to get them reoriented away from themselves is to orient them back to Christ. And so Christ becomes a model for all us and our willingness to suffer. And Christ becomes a model for us and our service to all. The only way to reorient Doug Finkbeiner in his busy life where he runs and does and thinks and did all that stuff 
is Jesus. Do you see? So this text tells us that following Christ means willingly suffering with Christ, whatever that means, and passionately serving others like Christ for his glory and not my own. You know, if we as followers of Christ live that way, we will do very well in glory. We don't have to worry about it. Where we need to focus is on following Christ now, whatever that means. I am... I get you, some of you have probably seen it. Maybe you even get it. Voice of the Martyrs. Are you familiar with Voice of the Martyrs? And I, 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 I read these stories in here and my wife reads them to me and I just, I feel sometimes like my own Christianity is so shallow. Do you ever feel that way? I, I look at my life and I say, I say to myself, you know, I took a stand for Christ and that guy sent me a really nasty email. And look, I don't like getting nasty emails. I don't like people verbally attacking me. Okay, I don't like any of that. And, and, and I'm not minimizing it. It's wrong what they do and it is suffering to a point. It is. But then I read these stories. And, and the one, we, I just grabbed one, that, but this is from 2016 of this incredible family from South Africa who after 9-11 really felt that God wanted them to go to Afghanistan and minister to people there. And they went. A mom, a dad, young young boy and a young, young girl. And they ministered there from 2003 to 2014, 11 years. And it wasn't easy. And one day, gunmen broke into the apartment. The mother was away and shot and killed the father and the two kids. And and then I read on about my brothers and sisters in Laos and and Indonesia and and Iran and, and in China and in Nigeria and on and on and on and on and on who who are dying for the cause of Christ. And willing, willing to, with a smile, to take a bullet to the head because Jesus matters. And they're, they're willing to suffer for him. And then we as Americans are calculating what we can and can't say about Christ because how it might affect our work and our jobs. Something's wrong, folks. Something's very wrong. The way of the cross as we follow the one who did it all for us, is to be willing to suffer. I'm not looking for suffering, okay? I'm not, I'm not passionate about suffering. But I pray that we're willing to suffer. And as we are willing to suffer, it's not because we're big mouths attacking everybody and calling them names. It's because we're giving people the gospel of Jesus Christ and serving and loving them even though we could be misunderstood and mistreated. So there's suffering with Christ and there's service like Christ. 
I hope I never get over what Jesus did with his disciples shortly after this, according to John chapter 13, when he washed their feet. Teaching his men that there's nothing that they shouldn't be willing to do for another so that they might bless them in the name of Christ and help that individual. Robert Rains said it like this in his prayer about James and John or really about himself. Rains said this, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am just like James and John. Change me, Lord. Make me a man who asks of you and of others, what can I do for you? Brothers and sisters, I don't know if there's a better prayer that you could pray than, Lord, by your grace, through your spirit, change me, Lord. A willingness to suffer, a heart that, 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 that serves others like Christ, a refreshing total abandonment that throws off the gown and jumps up and says, I don't care where it leads me, but I'm in this thing with Jesus. That's what God needs to do in my heart. That's what he needs to do in yours. The question is, will we let him? Father, these are hard passages, Lord. For we see our name everywhere. God, through your spirit, because we know your beloved son, Jesus Christ, would you do that work in our hearts where we spend much time looking at Christ and what he has done, the suffering he endured, the service he rendered, May it overwhelm our parched soul. May you tenderize our souls. So Lord, that we move back into a world with total abandonment, willing to suffer, wanting to serve. God, do that work through your spirit. Change us from the inside out. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.